You're listening to Connect Communities Podcast, recorded live in Stamford, Connecticut. If you'd like to know more about our community, stop by our website at www.connectcommunity.tv. Enjoy the message. Awesome. So if you have your Bibles, I'm going to share five lessons with you. And that's, that's the title of the message, Five Lessons to Make Peace in Strife. Five Lessons to Make Peace in strife. Now, I don't want to. I don't want to put you in this whole pack thing. But I feel like I feel like this pandemic has thrown us off our game a little bit, right? It has thrown us off our, our relational game a little bit. As you start coming back into the streets and, and the malls and, and the parking lots and, and all the traffic, right? We have new neighbors now, so there's a lot of traffic. I feel like there's a lot of opportunity for upset. Right? Have you have you realized like that a lot of your interactions with others involve frustration? Like people you don't know, <clears throat> most of what they the feelings that they arise in you is frustration. And and there's a lot of opportunity for strife, especially in those relationships that are closer. I pray that during this pandemic you were able to get along with the people that you were quarantining with. If not, this message will help you. But even those who are in your extended family or friends, I hope that this message can equip you to learn from Abigail how to make peace in moments of strife. We all go through strife. We all go uh, through opportunities to have those, you know, moments of attrition. And I think this message will help you. So let me give you context before we get to the lessons. Okay, we're going to learn from this lady who in a moment of extreme duress, she was able to avoid calamity. She was able to avoid tragedy in her family, tragedy that was coming for her, for her husband and for all of her employees. They were wealthy people and something happened to them that I'm going to share with you that caused David, who was not king yet, to just want to come in and kill everybody. And that's how things happened in those days. That's how justice was served. Her name was Abigail, as I said. And Abigail first entered the oracles of the scriptures and the oracles of Israel in a chapter of David's life where he was being persecuted. David had not yet become king of Israel, but he had gained some notoriety. People knew who he was. He had defeated Goliath. Goliath was dead. He had fought some battles on behalf of Israel. He had won some battles. And people started chanting, hey, Saul killed the thousands, but David killed the ten thousands. Yay, David. Saul became very jealous because David had the charisma and the heart of the people. So Saul, King Saul, began to persecute David out of jealousy because David's notoriety grew so much. Now, by this time, David was the king's son-in-law. He had married Saul's daughter, and, but he was still uh, uh, being persecuted by King Saul. King Saul tried to kill him several times. He was being hunted down. But at this moment in his life, being exiled, being ousted, being banished, David could not be in his hometown. He had to be out in the wilderness. But he was not alone. 600 men and their families were following David. That's a big group of people. And everywhere David went, they went with him. So David was their, their, their leader. 
Imagine 600 men with wives and kids just moving around through the wilderness. That is a big operation. And David, no doubt at this point, was trying to find a way to take care of them. So this is what David did. While in the wilderness, David was encamped with his people near uh, 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 the grazing area of a very wealthy man. This wealthy man had about 3,000 sheep, 1,000 goats, and, and, and he would have them go to pasture uh, during the whole season. And David made sure that nothing would happen to his cattle and nothing would happen to his workers. He basically protected the whole operation. Now, I got to remind you that 3,000 years ago when this happened, there was no 911 to call. You couldn't call the cops. You couldn't, there was nobody to call. Because any kind of security was existed to protect the kingdom, to protect the, 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 the powerful. It didn't exist for the people. So you were left to your own devices. And something common that would happen is people would steal other people's cattle. They would steal other people's land. And, and there would be a lot of infighting and people would die because of it. Now David made sure that nothing happened to this man's cattle. He could have just gotten a few of them. And, and to feed his people uh, if he were to play like, like the culture of the time. But he didn't do that. There was lawlessness in the land, yet David was upright. And he protected this man's uh, uh, property and his cattle. Because of David, no doubt he increased in profits. It's also important to know, as I have, that, and, and remind you that David was not a nobody. He was renowned. He was known. And what David was doing here would have elicited from this wealthy man some sort of gratitude, some kind of, of response that was like, hey, man, you did this for me? Here, I'm so thankful. Let me take care of you. That was the customary thing to do. It wasn't just like the, the, the customary thing to do in terms, of, in terms of common sense. That was the law. That was, that was what people were expected to do. Now, for us to understand this, we have to understand that hospitality in our culture is not something that, is, uh, uh, that we look to the law for. It's, it's a preference of everybody, right? We, 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 we like to think that we're hospitable. We like to think that we welcome strangers and, and people who we don't know in a positive way. But compared to their culture and what they were expected to do, we are not that hospitable. We're really not. We're not that good at hospitality because one of the first things that we teach our kids is what? Stranger? Stranger danger. So that's ingrained in our culture that anyone we don't know, you, you shouldn't associate with them because you just don't know them. You don't know what they're capable of. So our, our kind of kindness is a superficial kindness. We're kind in the surface. You know, we're kind as long as it doesn't cost us anything. We're kind as long as, you know, it doesn't have to be open. It doesn't have to be personal. Then we're kind. But we're not very open. We don't get close. We don't take care of people uh, as they were expected to. We can live in a neighborhood and never know our neighbors. It's very common in America now for people not to know their neighbors. And it's not our tendency to expect the best from people. In fact, we are taught that it's smart. It's smart to suspect 
to suspect. It's smart to be suspicious. It's smart to, to expect the worst. And, and I'm not criticizing all of us because I'm, I'm part of it. <laughs> I don't trust everybody with my kids. Like, I don't trust everybody with my family. It's, it's how we live. It's part of our culture. But for us to get into this scripture and, and understand why David was so strong in his response, we have to understand their culture. So let me read you a passage in Leviticus. You're going to have a different version on the screen. But I'm going to read the ESV version here on my notes. Because this is what was, was expected, not just from the people, but from God himself. When a, stranger, when a stranger sojourns with you in your land, you shall not do him wrong. You're reading the version. I like that version you're reading. Do not take advantage of foreigners who live among your land. Next verse says this. You shall not treat the stranger who sojourns with you as the native among you. And you shall love him as yourself, for you were strangers in the land of Egypt. I am your God. Treat him like a native born. Treat him like they are part of your family. Love others as you love yourself. Why? Because I am the Lord your God. This was a God commandment in the Levitical law of the people. They were expected to follow this. So I can presume that David's strategy was this. This man has been blessed. He has so much. Let's take care of his stuff. Because he no doubt he's going to, he's going to be kind to us. And, and we'll, we'll have some food. We'll have, we'll have some supplies. So this is what David does next. 1 Samuel chapter 25 verse 5. And when David heard that Nabal was shearing his sheep, he sent ten of his young men to Carmel with this message for Nabal. Go up to Carmel and go to Nabal and greet him in my name. And thus you shall greet him. Peace be to you. That's verse 6. And peace be to your house. And peace be to all who you have. Verse 7. I hear that you have shearers. Now your shepherds have been with us and we did them, we did them no harm. And they missed nothing all the time that they were in Carmel. Verse 8. Ask your young men, they, and they will tell you. Therefore, let my young men find favor in your, in your eyes, for we have come on a feast day. Please give whatever you have at hand to your servants and to your son David. So he basically sent a message. Hey, this is what we've done for you. This is what we have invested into your business. So... You know, re respond as, as, you, as you would in our culture. Respond. Reading this with a 2021 mind, you'd be like, well, it's, uh, it's the guy's prerogative. He can do whatever he wants. But in their culture, he was expected. He was obligated to take care of them. Now, when a man in Abel's position, like I said, went to a rich man, went to get his sheep sheared, it was their big payday of the year because they would let the wool grow in their sheep and their, and their goats to a certain level that when they sheared it, when they cut, they would sell that wool to them in the market. And they would get a lot of money for it. So that was the big payday. And David waited for that moment to go to Nabal. It would have been no problem for Nabal to return the favor. But that's not what Nabal does. From the beginning of the passage in 1 first, uh, first Samuel 25, it says that Nabal was a harsh and badly behaved man. 
That's a biblical nice way of saying he was dumb. He was dumb as a rock. And Abigail, his wife, was described as beautiful and discerning. Now, here's a little Bible trivia fact, okay? This is the reason why none of your friends are called Nabal. And a lot of your friends are called Abigail. It's in this passage right here. <laughs> Nabal was not a, a, a well-behaved man. But Abigail, she was beautiful and discerning. Now, this, this like, if, if you set this up as, as a, a archetype, this would be the premise of nearly every American sitcom nowadays, wouldn't it? Have you ever noticed? I don't know if you watch those American sitcoms on TV where the husband, he's, he's always dumb. <laughs> he never knows what to do. Like, well, how do I do this? How do I open the bottle? Is it right, Lucy, babe? And then the woman walks in the room like he just, she just discovered plutonium, right? Because the woman is always smart. Have you noticed that? Am I offending anybody here? I hope not. Because that's what we watch on TV all the time. And the woman goes like, it's Lefty Lucy, babe. <sighs> it looks like in every sitcom, like all the guy wants to do is drink beer and sports. I never connect it because I don't like beer and I don't watch sports. But that's what it is on TV. I think that this is the premise. Basically what we watch is a dumbed-down version of this very, a very basic version of this dynamic of Nabal and Abigail. Because he was not... He was not, uh, uh, as we can see, very wise. Watch his response. Watch what he, how he responds to David's men. Nabal answered David's servants, Who is this David? Who is the son of Jesse? I'm in verse 10 right now. There are many servants these days who are breaking away from their masters. Shall I take my bread and my water and my meat that I have killed for my shears and give it to men who come from I don't know where? So David's young men turned away and came back and told David all of this. He was basically dismissing David. He was not just dismissing David. He was demeaning David. He was saying, who are you? Who do you think, who do, who do you, think you are? Like, Am I supposed to, to be kind to you? Who are you? And so what that you protected my stuff? It's like he was saying, you did what you were supposed to do. All right? I'm not going to give you anything. So when David heard that, he told his men, strap your swords. He was basically saying, let's go, boy, boys. Grab your swords. We're going to show him who he's talking to. We're going to show him what this is about. We're going to show him. So he got 400 men, left 200 men to take care of their stuff and the women. And he got 400 men determined to destroy their house. At the same time, when David's men are telling him the story, Nabal's men are coming to Abigail and relating her the story of the very, very dumb thing her husband just did. And her, her, her informant says, hey, listen, you have to consider what you should do right now. Because your husband is a worthless man and nobody can talk to him. Destruction is certain. Harm is determined against us. David is coming for us. And listen, they took care of us. We know what they're capable of. 
We've seen them. We, have, we, we were with them this whole time. And they were very, very kind to us. You should take care of this. She had no clue of what had just happened. And this is where we pick up. I wanted to give you the context because this is where we pick up the, the, the story with Abigail. And we learn from Abigail because her wisdom and her wit turned this whole situation around. 400 men were coming to destroy everything and show Nabal who he was dealing with. Yet Abigail stepped in. Chapter 25, verse 18 says this, Then Abigail made haste and took 200 loaves and two skins of wine and five sheep already prepared and five sias of parched grain and a hundred clusters of raisins and 200 cakes of figs and laid them on donkeys. This is the first lesson from Abigail that we can learn and apply it in our lives. Be quick to write a wrong. If you're taking notes, that's your first lesson. Be quick to right a wrong. Scripture says that Abigail made haste. She prepared good food, drinks, cakes, ice cream, mimosas. She got it all ready. She packed up the donkeys. And she went. But it says that she made haste. She didn't sit around. She didn't wait around. It's so important for us to not get cozy with wrongdoing. When we see wrongdoing, to be able to write it, especially if it happens under our watch and it is within our power, like in Abigail's situation. Let us make haste to right those wrongs. There's something to be said about not allowing wrongdoing to be normalized in your life. Because what that does, it recalibrates your compass in the wrong way. Every time you, you normalize wrongdoing in your conscience every time you don't act on it every time you dismiss it every time it happens and you don't do anything about it if it's within your power to do it you won't notice as much the next time it happens your sensibilities they become dull your, your ability to react and to know what to do in wisdom they become dull so let me encourage you today to make haste like abigail to make wrongdoings to to right wrongs. We got to stay sharp. This is how we stay sharp. When lies are spoken, you respond with the truth. When someone is trying to deceive, you'll be vocal with honesty. When there's a chance that someone might get cheated or defrauded, you lift up integrity. You stand for integrity. Too many people live with unresolved issues and they keep pushing the resolution forward and forward and forward down the road. And what happens is that strife keeps stacking up. And then you're wondering, why am I not living in peace? It's because you have so many unresolved issues that you're just lingering on them. To make peace a reality, let me encourage you to make haste to right some wrongs. In Romans 12, uh, 12 18, it says this, if, if, if possible, so far as it depends on you, live peaceably. With all, I like the version on the screen. Do all that you can to live in peace with everyone. All that you can. can. Exhaust your, your capacities. Your capacities. And that's what this is about. It's about living peacefully with all. Next lesson is this as we continue. Let's read the passage. 1 Samuel uh, 25 verse 24 says this. She fell at his feet. And said, on me alone, 
my Lord, be the guilt. Please let your servant speak in your ears and hear the words of, of your servant. I take all the blame. It's my fault, even though he wasn't. And this is the second lesson. Take responsibility. If you're trying to find peace and strife in any situation, you have to take responsibility, especially if it's within your power. In Abigail's situation, she was co-owner. She was the wife. So she said, hey, let it, let it come on me. If you're going to do anything to anybody, do it to me alone. Let's reduce your target right here. Don't, don't, don't take it on my workers. Don't take it on anybody else. Like, just look at me right now. It's, this is between you and me. That's what she was saying. It wasn't her fault. She didn't even know it had happened. But she said, in me alone. She took responsibility. See, it's human nature to find something or someone else to blame. That's within all of us. It's in all of us. Like from, from, from a young age to an older age, like we try to find excuses on why something happened and what to do about it. And, and it, it's, it's harder for us to take responsibility. How many of us have used the excuse or heard the excuse? Hey, I, I'm sorry, I couldn't get here because of traffic. Traffic was so bad. It was, it was traffic's fault. I would have been here if it wasn't for traffic. It might be, might be true that happens. The reality is that we have traffic in our pockets nowadays, right? Everybody has access to traffic. You can find out unless there's something that just happened, which could be possible. But in most cases, you can find out with precision how long it's going to take for you to get to your destination. And if you just keep blaming traffic, you're not going to change. It's, nothing's going to be done about it. Maybe a better response is this. Hey, I'm sorry. I didn't plan it right. I didn't check traffic and take responsibility. I'll do better next time. Because what you're telling your mind and your soul is, I have a part in this. And I can do something about it. How many of you have, have, have heard the excuse, you know, you know, my job, it's not that great because of my coworkers. We've all had problems with co-workers in the work environment. It might be true. It's, it's, it might be that you have people that are hard to work with. You, got, you can say like JD, if you knew the environment I work with, it's really hard for me to be my best. It may be true. It may be true. But if you wait for the environment to be perfect before you can be your best, you're never going to get there. Let me encourage you to decide in your mind that even though your environment might not be best, you will not allow other people. You will not allow their principle. You will not allow their standards to rob you from being your best. Choose to be your best. That's how you take responsibility in those scenarios. See, taking responsibility doesn't mean that, that, you're, you're, just, that you're, you're just going to follow along with whatever's happening. Taking responsibility means that you are acting on what you can control instead of feeling like a victim of what you can't control. That's what taking responsibility does. It allows you to act on what is within your power rather than feel like a victim of what, is with it, of what is out of your control. See, you can't control traffic. You just can't. But you, but you can plan better. You can't control your work environment. Even if you are the leader of the organization, you can, you can try to uh, establish culture. You can try to do your best, but you can't control every single aspect of it. This is what you can do. You can control your commitment and your dedication to your work. 
You can't control the economy, but you can live on a budget. You can't control your spouse. And that's all I'm going to say about that. <laughs> you really can't. That's it. You're stuck with that old goat. <laughs> I'm kidding. You can make the most of it. You can give your best. You can engage in the best way. Third lesson is this. Fight for peace. Very important. Fight for peace. Abigail came to this fight armed with gifts. She wasn't trying to prove to David that she was right. She, was trying to try, she wasn't trying to convince David that he had no business destroying her home or killing everybody in her household. She came resolute with a resolution in mind. She wasn't trying to be right. She was trying to make peace. That was her goal. See, when you fight, when anybody fights, they choose the weapons according to what kind of harm, according to what kind of response, and according to the desired result. The weapon matches the desired result. And I don't want to be graphic or condone any violence here at all, but in a fight, if somebody wants to bruise, they'll use their fists. Or, or some kind of blunting thing that can bruise somebody. If they want to cut, they'll use a knife and so on. In the same way, when you engage in an, in, an, in an argument, when you engage in a verbal fight, you pick your weapons as well. And your words are your weapons of choice. In a, in a, in a, in a discussion, in a passionate discussion, your weapon is used according to your desired goal. So, this is what happens. If you're trying to be right, what kind of words are you going to choose? You're going to choose words that will justify and prove your point because you're trying to be right. So, all your argumentation is going to be based on, I'm right. You're going to try to prove your point. You're going to try to justify. If you're fighting to win the argument, you want to come out on top, you're going to be the winner. Your words of choice will be to persuade the other person and completely shut them out. You're going to try to shut them up with your words. Those will be your weapons of choice. If you feel insecure, small, if in this discussion somehow you feel like you are, you are being diminished and you're trying to overimpose yourself, you're trying to show that you're the bigger person, that you're bigger than them, then your words will be picked to demean, to make the other person small, to humiliate, because we pick our weapons according to our desired result. So when I say fight for peace today, I'm encouraging you to do away with all the, those weapons and pick words that will make peace. Pick words that will lead you to peace. It doesn't mean that you're not going to address the issue. It doesn't mean that you're just going to push things away and say, well, we're not going to talk about that because I want peace. That's not what it means. It means that your words are tempered. They're measured. They're enveloped in love. They, they recognize the value of the other person. They recognize that this is a fight in the bigger context. There are other things that matter more. So use your words wisely. Notice the, how she invites peace with her words. I'm going to read 1 Samuel uh, verse, uh, chapter 25, verses 27 through 31. Listen to her words. Please forgive the trespass of your servant. For the Lord will certainly make my Lord 
as a sure house. Because my Lord is fighting the battles of the Lord. Notice, David is homeless. David is in the middle of the wilderness. And he only has the promise of God that he's going to be king. This is what she is speaking into his life. And evil shall not be found in you so long as you live. If men rise up to pursue you and to seek your life, the life of my Lord shall be bound in the bundle of the living, in the care of the Lord your God. And the lives of your enemies shall sling out as from the hollow of a sling. She even brought in his weapon. He killed Goliath with the, with the sling. So he knew what she was talking about. She was very wise here. And when the Lord has done to my Lord according to all the good that he has spoken concerning you and has appointed you prince over Israel, David, you're going to be king. When God has done that, my Lord shall have no cause of grief or pangs of conscience for having shed blood without cause or for my Lord working salvation on himself. And when the Lord has dealt with my, well with my Lord, remember your servant. In other words, when you get to the place, when you get to your palace, don't forget me. Remember me. This passage also gives us, gives us a fourth lesson, which is this. Remember what matters most. In a moment of strife, in a moment of tension, in a moment where you might be at the office or at home or you're dealing with a family member, a brother, a sister. It's getting under your nerves. Maybe you've been in a fight for a long time. Remember what matters most. We all have bad days. We're all going to have challenges that seem bigger than we really are. And when we, remember, when we remember what matters most, what happens is that we put things in the right order. Not only in the right order, we put things in the right proportion of value. That's very important that we know the proportion of value of things. This is what Abigail was saying. David, is this worth your reputation? Is what you're about to do worth your peace? Because listen, very soon, this is going to be nothing but a little chapter in your life. It is not as big as you're making it to be. Yeah, my husband is a dummy. But is it worth for you to go into your kingdom thinking, I, I, I kill that whole, I kill that whole farm, that whole enterprise. Like I, I just destroyed everybody because they made me mad. Is it worth for you to do all that, David? Is this bloodshed worth it? And we can ask ourselves the same question. It may be a tough season in your family. It may be a tough season in your relationships, in your home relationships. But remember, he's your brother. Remember, she's your sister. It may be a tough moment, a tough patch in your marriage. You might, guys might be going through a rough season right now. But remember, he's your husband. He's the man who said, for better or for worse, for richer or for poorer, in sickness and in health. She's your wife. She's the one who vowed her life to you. She's the one who, who vowed her whole self, her mind, her body, her soul. Thank God for her body. An appropriate joke a little bit, but it's true. It's true. Love you, honey. Is all the anger worth it? The desire for vengeance, the vindictiveness that is trying to arise, is it worth acting upon? you got to ask yourself that question. 
Is it worth the action? Now, I know it might make you mad. I know it makes you want to quit. I know it makes you want to storm out. I know it makes you want to stop. But considering what matters most, should you act on it? Should you act on it? Maybe you're going through something right now. Maybe you've gone through something. Maybe this is for the future. But keep this in your heart. I'm asking you to keep this question in those moments of strife, conflict, distress. Considering, considering where you're going. Considering who you are becoming. So you got to remember what matters most. Not only from today's perspective. David was in the wilderness. He was a vigilante in the wilderness when Abigail met him. Doing justice in his own hands. But she didn't call him out on who he was then. She said, this is who you're going to be. Are you going to act like who you are or where you are today? Or are you going to act like the person that God is calling you to be? That's what she was asking. That's the, po the, 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 the lesson here as well. When you remember what matters most, it recalibrates your aim. It helps you aim at the right target. It helps you aim and helps you also live by faith. Because when you, when you, when, when you live this way, what, 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 what it does, it encourages you to live according to who you're becoming. And even though the neighbors in your life may not see it, even though the neighbors in your life may look at you and say, who, who do you think you are? They might dismiss you and treat you like a nobody. And, and you may be surrounded by negativity. Let me be the Abigail in your life, like a male Abigail, like an Abby male, right? Let me say, <laughs> my brother, my sister, God has called you to be a king. God has called you to be a queen. You are not going to be in the same place you are right now, five years from now, ten years from now. Is it worth the scars? Now, you might not have to walk into your promise just yet. The things that you are working toward might not be present. They might not be real. But you will get there. God will get you there. And when he gets you there, to that place where he has promised, is this fight, is this strife, is this contention worth your the weight on your conscience? Is the moment of anger right now, the distress, worth that, that caused you to act foolishly? Let me ask you not to do that. Don't allow this moment to endure in your life. So Abigail appealed. And her appeal worked. David listened to her. It's almost as though David came back from this anger sphere... And realize, oh my goodness, you are so right. I'm so, I've been so stressed out. I've been going in, in this wilderness life for so long that I forgot that one day I'm going to be king. Do I want this on my conscience? So he thanked her for her wisdom, took her gifts, and told her, go home in peace. We're not going to do anything. You're forgiven. Go home in peace. And at this point in the story, we draw our final lesson. Because even when you have made peace, there's one more thing we need to do. All right? Our final lesson is this. Let's go to 1 Samuel chapter 25, verses 36 through 38. And Abigail came to Nabal 
And behold, he was holding a feast in his house like the feast of a king. He had no clue what had just happened. He was clueless. And Nabal's heart was merry within him, for he was very drunk. So she did nothing until the morning light. Smart woman. In the morning, when the wine had gone out of Nabal, and he was no longer hungover. It's not in the scripture, but that's what happened. His wife told him these things. And when she told him these things, his heart died within him. He probably had a stroke. This is probably what happened. Scholars think that this is what happened. He had a stroke, and from the stroke, he became paralyzed. He, get, he had paralysis. And he became as a stone, Scripture says. Verse 38. And about ten days later, the Lord struck Nabal, and he died. So what, what scholars think is that he probably had a stroke, couldn't eat, couldn't feed himself, and slowly died within 10 days. Here's a fifth lesson and last lesson. Confront the source of the problem. When everything is said and done, when you have been able to deal with strife, confront the source of the problem. When Abigail, what he, she did by coming to David was very important. And we sometimes are going to do that. But David was not the source of the problem. Do you understand this? David was not the source of the problem. Making peace with David didn't actually address the root issue. Making peace with David addressed that moment. But Nabal was still, still kicking, drinking like a king. And who was, who was Nabal going to upset next? So unless she dealt with the, with the root of the problem... The problem would still be there. And that's what, where many of us fail because we may be quick to right or wrong. Maybe you are great at taking responsibility. And maybe we even fight for peace and remember what matters most. We, we do those things. We have a presence of mind to, to temper things. But if we, don't if we don't confront what the source of the problem that conflict, that one specific conflict may end. But just down the road, we're going to see other problems arise. So I want to encourage you today to deal with the Nables in your life. And Nabal doesn't simply represent another person. Nabal here doesn't really represent other individuals that you need to show them a piece of your mind. It really represents those parts of our lives that are clueless. And it might, be even be, it might even be within you. Like those parts of you that you do, you act without thinking. It's on autopilot. You say things. You respond in a certain way. You act a certain way that causes these repeating conflicts. It might be a bad habit. It might be toxic relationships. You get influenced. And every time you're happy, you get together with that person or that group of people, and your joy just leaves you. And you, you get indignant. You get angry. You, you got to pay attention to that. It might be gossip. You know, you're at peace with, with people. You're, you're getting along, and then somebody comes in with gossip, and, you, and you, you engage in it, and then you don't see people peacefully anymore you it changes the way you see them it might be complaining 
It might be that, you know, there's a lot of your, your natural response is to complain. And that takes away your peace. And automatically you come, you don't come with understanding, you come with complaint. Your response is complaint. And it might be that's, you know, because you, you, you've had so much and, and it's, it's getting, it, it's, it's taking you beyond your threshold and your ability to sustain it. And so your first response is not surrender, not come to God, not pray, not let it all out. It's to complain. That's your first response. It could be biases, prejudices, the way you see people and the way you judge them because of how they look. Those things, if, if all those things remain unchecked, we're bound to have strife in our lives. We're bound to be isolated. We're bound to not be able to build a life of peace. So let me encourage you to confront the source. I'm going to give you a scripture that comes actually from David. David wrote this. And this is the reason why we realize that David was sensible enough to submit to this woman. Because any other evil person in that time, they wouldn't give the time of day to a woman. Yet David not only listens to her, but after Nabal died, he married her. He said, I want this kind of wisdom by my side. I, I need you by my side. I, I, if I'm going to be a king, I need that kind of wisdom in my life. And this is what David prayed. Psalm 139, verse 23. Search me, O God, and know my heart. Try me and know my thoughts. And see if there be any grievous, grievous way in me. And lead me in the way everlasting. I want to remind you that this is how you come to God. If you want to kill the nables in your life. Because for you to find peace... Nabal has to die. The Nabals that are trying to cause strife in your life, they have to die. And obviously I'm talking figuratively here. I'm not talking about a person. I'm talking about th these emotions and feelings and situations. They have to be let go. And for that, we need the humility to come to God's presence and say, God, look at my heart. I'm opening my heart completely. See if there's any grievous way in me. I want to call the worship team because we're going to end right here so that we can be in God's presence today. We're going to, we're going to have a time of worship. It's, it's Pentecost Sunday today. A very significant day in the Christian calendar is the day when the Holy Spirit came upon the 120 people in the upper room and He just filled them. And because he filled them, 3,000 people that day joined the church. And that's really how the church started. Today is the day the church started some almost 2,000 years ago. And uh, it's a beautiful day for us to come into God's presence and say, God, just know my heart. Change me. I, I want to be at peace. See, Jesus is the prince, prince of peace. He brings a word of peace, a word of grace for all of us. So let me encourage you to make a habit of these five lessons. Be quick to right or wrong. Take responsibility. Fight for peace. Remember what matters most. And confront the source of the problem. And I believe that if you do that, you will have peace with others. You have peace with God. And you will become the king. You will become the queen that God has called you. 
to be. Do you receive it this morning? Amen. Thank you. We love you so much.